Welcome back to the Coach and Kernan Show. It's June 27th, 2022, episode 11, Real Voices of the Game. Today we have one of the original Nasty Boys and world champion, two-time All-Star, former closer Rob Dibble. I'm Dave D'Agostino, former head college coach and professional baseball player. I'm joined by my co-host, America's most beloved sports writer, 47 years with the New York Post, Kevin Kernan. Kevin, welcome back, buddy, to the show. Awesome articles this week. Uh, I love reading both of them. I think you rattled some cages with that analytics article, Billy Bean. Very, very appropriate. Um, today we're in for that treat, though. We've got, as I mentioned, former Reds closer Rob Dibble. Give you a little background on Rob. 1988 to 1995 with the Cincinnati Reds, Chicago White Sox, and the Brewers. Two-time All-Star, 1990 and 91. World Series champion in 1990 and NLCS MVP in 95. First-round draft choice in 1983. And I, I learned in talking to Rob, his first position wasn't pitcher coming through the line. Uh, Kevin, welcome back. And Rob, welcome to the show. Dave, Kevin, thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, by the way, Dave and Dibs, uh, you know, I was there in 90, you know, when you were NLCS MVP and, uh, you know, I, I covered those series and, you know, the great uh, battle with the Red, uh, the Reds were facing the mighty A's, swept them away and, and uh, got to cover Randy Myers later on. So I'm really looking forward to this because, because to me, and this is why we do the show, we bring on people who have been there, done it, know what they're talking about, and and really unafraid. They're kind of fearless, like 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 us. And 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 with Dibs, um, I think it's phenomenal too that he 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 transitioned from being a great closer, great you know great major league career, and is now does a phenomenal job on his own ESPN Radio. I love being on his show because whenever I'm on his show, he asks me the best questions of anybody and he gets me fired up. So really looking forward to the show. That's fantastic. And uh, Kevin, you want to start with, with Rob here? Get us going. Yeah, let me get, let, let me get you going, Rob. Uh, before we get to the, you know, the, the major league stuff, I want, I want people to understand and give you an update of what you're doing now and uh, how, how important, uh, you know, some of the things you're doing. And, you, and tell us a little bit about your travel team and, and also a little bit about your, your show. Well, <clears throat> thank you, guys. Um, I, I have seven travel teams right now in Connecticut from eight years old where, you know, we're teaching the beginning stuff and, and you know, trying to get them to learn how to catch the ball, throw the ball, grip a ball properly, which is the most important thing about baseball, uh, how to hold a bat, how to hold a, a ball in their hands. And all the way up to 17, and I coach the 17U kids because my ultimate goal is to get these kids into college. Um, you know, any way I can, you know, get them by hook or by crook. You know, my wife and I, she's a former school teacher, um, and and our partners, our kids go to school together. My daughter's 11, and uh, my partner's son is 11, his other son is 8, and so they're in the program. I don't, I don't have anybody in the program. Um, it, it's all about love of the game and trying to teach kids to do it right, trying not to get them hurt while they're doing it. Um, and when we started it, we just opened up a batting cage with uh, six tunnels, machines, uh, a hit tracks, rap soda, er everything we could do up here in Connecticut to try and, and get these kids to love baseball like I did, like so many people do, and but do it the right way. You know, and, and tell them, listen, you know what, as often as you want to be in there, uh, you know, use a facility. You could use it at two, three in the morning, 
So now we have college kids in there. We got, you know, minor leaguers in there. We've had uh, big league guys come through there. And it's it's a facility that isn't designed. Trust me, we're not making any money, <laughs> so, which upsets my wife from time to time. But it's it's all about growing the game at the grassroots level because I lived in L.A. for 10 years and I just saw so many garbage coaches and uh, you know, people trying to just take money from people and, and lie to the kids and say, you know, your kid uh, is, is special and your kid, you know, has an eight, 80 arm, you know, an 80 would be the best arm in the major leagues, like uh, um, Michael Kopech uh, of the uh, White Sox. Well, you know, your kid's throwing 78 and he's 18 years old. He doesn't have an 80 arm, you know, but he could develop into a great pitcher. You know, if he could locate pitches and, and do the right thing. So I, I just, you know, we got into it. We didn't even want to do travel teams, but there was a necessity because there's even people around Connecticut that are that are in it for the money, in it for their own benefit and glory, I guess. Um, and you just get tired of it as, as a former major leaguer and a, and a former pro player. You just want people to to understand there's no easy road. There's, there's no gimmicks, there's no tricks, there's no analytics that are going to make you a great player. It's, it's hard work. And I love what John Smoltz said. You got to practice the sport 10,000 hours to get good at it. So I was just, I, I covered the Travelers Championship up here in Connecticut uh, for, for the last seven days. And we had some great young players on. Uh, ben James is a 19-year-old kid. He's the number one amateur golfer in the world was on and uh, we had the kid from Texas. Um, his, his name is uh, Cole Hammer and he's 20. And, uh, you know, we had we had kids like that. on. And, and to hear Ben James, this kid is the best amateur player in the world, won the amateurs down in, in Sawgrass in Florida last year. And to have him say on the first tee of the Travelers, he was scared to death he could barely hit the ball. Wow. And that's as real as it gets. It's, yeah. it's it's the human element of all of these different sports that makes them so great. So there's there's nobody that can pull strings or give you some information to make you a better player. You actually have to step out there and do it. It sounds like you're trying to educate the parents as well as the you know bring bring uh, bring bring tools of success to the players as well. Kevin, that's the toughest part. Uh, I, I think you know. And I love the parents. They, they support these kids. But there comes a time where, you know, and I was just doing it the other day. I, I was giving an 11-year-old kid a lesson. He's got a great arm, but he's a thrower. He's not a pitcher. And I'm trying to get him to locate and, and grip the ball properly. And, you know, the dad is walking down going, you know, after 10 minutes. I mean, listen, I, I used to throw for hours, you know, throw tennis balls, throw baseballs with my brothers. You know, we used to long toss, even in Connecticut. In December, in the street, we yep. would throw from telephone pole to telephone pole to strengthen our arms. And he comes down, and he's like, "Do you need some Gatorade? Do you need some water?" And, you know, and, and I kind of ignored him because it's like, dude, you know, my daughter takes tennis lessons, and if and if I interrupted her her coach, who is world renowned, he's got the number one doubles player in the world. Uh, he's got great amateurs, and he's a great instructor. I would never, ever you know, interrupt that guy and, and, you know, to, to, to parent, to be a helicopter parent. And that's, that's the problem that these kids, I don't want to say that they're pampered, but they're taught at an early age, the, the response to fatigue, the response to, 
you know, thirst is, you know, I'm going to have someone that's going to give me a bucket of water or Gatorade. I mean, that's part of being an athlete is pushing yourself past the edge of no return, you know, and I'll give you an example in spring training, you know, and Larry Rothschild, you know, him, KK really one of the best pitching coaches ever was my pitching coach with the Reds. He used to run us to death, 20 really? poles and a pole is one foul pole over and back was one. We do 20 a day in spring training and then 10 sprints. And then you could go and take a shower. Well, we would go and run another five, 10 miles. Wow. Because you want to push yourself to a breaking point where you're going to, you know, not just stop and throw up, but, but to, to the point where like runners talk about getting that high, that's the same thing being a professional athlete. You want to push yourself to a point where I, I, I have to go farther. I have to make myself better. So if we're telling kids at 11 years old that after 10 minutes of throwing a baseball, which and I'm doing it light, I'm tell, having him do it about 50 percent. He's not even doing it max effort. You know, the hey, you know, hey, Johnny, you need, do you need a drink? I mean, that's that's the problem right there that we're already building in this this reflex action that if I'm tired, someone's going to save me. I didn't want to be saved. I didn't want my dad to save me. I didn't want my mom to save me. I went, even when I was 10, 12 years old, I wanted to push myself, whether it was hockey, basketball, football, you know, and, until I could not move and I was on the ground. That's the way I was taught. And so I just think we, we have parents that they don't understand that the only way these kids are going to get to the, be, the highest level that they could possibly get to, you got to let them fail on their own. Well, I'm going to let Dave jump in after this question because I think he has a similar approach. But the thing is, and that's that's the biggest thing, is that by you doing that approach, you became a guy who could save games. And mm-hmm. you pushed yourself. And and what I see in the majors, even if you have uh, in the minors now, the, the horror stories I'm hearing from scouts, they don't even work, you know, for the most part now. Uh, they've got – T-shirts and shorts, and they may hit a little, and they don't do anything else. The pitchers don't push themselves. As we know, most of the pitchers are on pitch limits. Every pitcher's on a pitch limit, so they don't push themselves. And then you get a good pitching coach like a Larry Rothschild, and his it intersects with these the nerds in charge, and all of a sudden he can't do his thing, and people blame the old school guys when the reality is these old school guys have their hands tied and unless we change the philosophy going in and you create guys like you, you know, you're trying to create and educate those parents. Um, Cause I've seen the same thing, Dibs. I just got back a few weeks ago from a tournament up in uh, Mount Olive, New Jersey, beautiful setting for, you know, all weekend, you know, kids 12 years old and under. And, and, and it's unbelievable. Uh, I'm going to take it one step further. They're lawnmower parents. That's what I call them. They cut everything out of the way, so there's right. nothing there. And uh, and that you gotta you gotta push your kids, and you gotta give them people who know what they're talking about. And 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 like you, the best thing you said, you said so many great things, but there is no easy way. There is no easy way. You got to push yourself. And it also brought back a great memory for me. Uh, telephone poles. That's what we used to do too. That telephone poles. That was our training ground. Yep. Telephone poles were, you know, everything from uh, wiffle ball home runs to running to, you know, football. Just a real quick, give, give us a little uh, feeling of what it was like for you growing up in, in Connecticut and how you developed into the athlete you became. Oh, God, it, it was amazing. I had two older brothers that were exceptional athletes as well. 
And, you know, we would play, you know, two-on-one football, meaning, you know, two two big guys against another big guy because my, my brothers are both six foot two, six foot three like me. And um, so we're growing up and I, we'd even do it in the basement. My mother, it, we drove her crazy. So we had right. an old couch in the basement, concrete floor, and we used to call it jump over the pile. And you had to get to the couch, but you had to go through, you know, the two other guys. And you would jump over, you dive through, you do you do anything you can, you know, elbows, punching, whatever you could, and you'd get the crap beat out of you. And it was the most fun I've ever had in my life. Uh, my brother Lee, my brother Chris. And one became, one went in the Navy, one became a fireman, was unbelievable at what they did. But um, so we'd be out in the front lawn. It could be, you know, the winter time with a foot of snow and it's one-on-one or two-on-one football. And it's the same thing. To get to that finish line, you just got the crap beat out of you. And you kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And sometimes it would start fights. And, you know, my, my dad, who was 6'4", 225, big guy, never played sports because he was a, a newsman and, and a, a radio host himself. Um, he would have to come break it up. And, you know, and, and so in the wintertime when you couldn't throw, and this is before, you know, if you, if, you know, if, if you had a gym or now they have sports malls and they have really cool stuff and these kids are so spoiled, they don't even know it. Um, we're out there in, you know, 10 degree weather throwing from telephone pole to telephone pole to see who had the best arm. And I truly believe that, that the, my velocity was built up through sports, you know, my lower half, you know, playing soccer, basketball, uh, and everything in hockey growing up. And then, and then the arm strength was really throwing footballs too. We threw footballs as far as we could, as far as we could, basketballs, as far as we could, you know, because that's just the way it was. And that's, you know, it, it wasn't like, oh my God, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to tear. You, you didn't have that knowledge. So the lack of knowledge was actually very helpful for us. And plus we lived on kind of a hill in, in Southington, Connecticut, where if it got by the guy that was on the lower half, it went all the way down about a half mile and you had to run after it. So it made you a better catcher too. Whatever, whatever it was, you did not want to get by you. So, um, you know, that was, that was my upbringing. I mean, yeah, we weren't the best kids. I mean, we used to throw snowballs at cars and run and, and do all the kid things. But, um, for the most part, and even the neighborhood kids, even the neighborhood kids, I mean, growing up in Connecticut, New England, we would play football in December, football in January. And, and we'd go to the high school when it wasn't being used and it would be like getting tackled, you know, in a parking lot. And you'd be in jeans and a sweatshirt and just getting the crap beat out of you. And there was nobody to, you know, come give you a Gatorade or come, you know, it's okay. It'll be okay. You know, when you lost, it was just, you know what, take it and, and move on, move on, move on. Right. Yep. So yeah, I, I had the best. I was actually gonna offer. And, and that's why I like Dave. Dave's a lot like me. Dave, Dave, uh, some Dave said to me the other day that I'm going to steal from him and, and use it is, you know, I can either give your kid information or affirmation. I could I could keep telling you and blowing smoke up your butt how great your kid is, or I could give him the proper information. He can use that or not use it, but uh, try to make him a better athlete and a better person. You know, I mean, that's that's what we have to do. We have to stop lying to these kids and and stop pampering them. And and I wanted to get to one thing real quick. The beauty of my job on my radio show is uh, Harford Healthcare, the Bone and Joint Institute up here in Connecticut. They they you know do all kinds of stuff with, with the, you know, athletes, they have a motion lab, they're trying to do baseline information so that if your kid ever does get hurt, he knows when he was healthy, what he looked like. 
And the one thing from the last 20 years of talking to orthopedic surgeons, the best doctors, the best you know surgeons that do Tommy John, uh, do shoulders, is that there, there is no way to save somebody from an injury. And I'm going to say it again. There's no way to save a pitcher from an injury. And it doesn't mean if he throws 250 pitches or throws 100 pitches, if, if he's got a weak ulnar collateral ligament in his elbow, it's going to pop. It's going to blow. Oh, You're right. You know, when, when you, and let's just take a regular Garrett Cole uh, outing where he throws 110 pitches. Well, he threw probably 50 to 75 in the bullpen. He throws, let's say, minimum five in between innings. He's throwing over 200 pitches every fifth day anyway. So thinking 50 or 100 less pitches is going to save Garrett Cole is insane. But you've got people that will go on television, go on uh, and write books and be like, yes, this is the way to save someone from an injury without, without proper information, without asking. I've asked so many, Kevin and Dave, so many surgeons you know, that, that are now dealing with an, an epidemic at the lower levels, and it's more from overusage. Um, it's from playing baseball not uh, 12 months a year. It's from no recovery. So it's not about how many pitches in Little League they're throwing. It's, it's not about curveballs. It's, it's not about overuse. It's about improper technique and the fact that these kids have no time to recover. So that's one of the reasons I went into the, the, the baseball business is because, listen, I don't want your kid to play year-round. I want your kid to play maybe six, seven months and go play some other sports and have people, when we play these tournaments, see how good your kid is. But, it, you know, by playing 12 months a year, it's not going to make your kid a better baseball player. That's great information. Dave, I know you're chomping at Talk the more to our audience, Rob, about that because I know you were a Oh no, I love I love that. I, I I'm I'm glad we we connected the other day. That's what that's my buffer: information or affirmation. Anytime I'm asked to evaluate a player, I ask the parent, "Do you want information or affirmation?" I'll tell you what you want to hear. Or do you want the truth? Uh, Rob, you were a, a very good multi-sport athlete. Elaborate on that for the parents in the audience listening that think their kids need to play 12 months out of the year, get hitting lessons six days a week, pitching lessons six days a week. Talk about the importance of playing multiple sports, not just for the body, but also for the mind to get some freshness. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think the biggest thing for kids is is we're, we're making it a job to them at 12 years old. You know, they're hating the sport because you're forcing them to, to overplay it. You know, the reason I, I was such a, a good athlete at all these different sports is because when I wasn't playing a sport, I was down at the, at the local, you know, uh, playground shooting hoops or playing kickball. Or, you know, which actually helped me to become a better soccer player in, in, in junior high and high school. So, the, I, you know, I, I think a couple of things that are killing kids right now is, you know, obviously video games and staying in your house. You got to get out. You got to run around. You know, we used to always, you know, be running around, chasing each other, riding bikes everywhere. And, uh, and obviously because of the, the way the circumstances are, you can't let your kid ride a bike 10 miles across town to go play tennis. And I used to do this in junior high. Uh, or go play, you know, softball, or go play baseball, or whatever. Um, so growing up, I, I, I wanted to play every sport. I, you know, I didn't have goals like, hey, I, I, you know, in order to get to college, I have to play baseball, or I have to play basketball, or what, and 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 really get locked into one sport. I think to the point where kids are just like, they're they're they have no time to mentally recover, and you know, then then a lot of it is too. Then you're getting you're getting bad coaching. So if if your kid is getting 
bad hitting lessons for six days a week. And then all of a sudden he's striking out three times every game. And you're like, well, you know, I'm paying all this money for these hitting lessons. What's wrong? Well, if he's not getting proper instruction, it's not going to help him in the game. Baseball is so hard. I love what Derek Jeter said the other day about failure, that you have to be able to accept failure. Kids won't accept failure anymore. The parents certainly won't accept failure anymore. And so that, you know, and when you're stuck in one sport, you know, you, you might not even be playing your best sport. So for me, um, I always thought, you know, I was, I was amazing at soccer. I was amazing at basketball and baseball was just more like a hobby. I loved being great at it, but you know, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to college probably on a basketball or, a, you know, a six, four, and I could run, I, I could run a six, four, 60. And, uh, you know, I did track, I did a bunch of other stuff, but you know, when you're growing up in the seventies and eighties, there, there, it's not like you're thinking college, you're just thinking, Hey, I just want to make each team. So, you know, when, when I got to the end of the line in, in high school, I had more scholarship offers for soccer than I did baseball. Because I come from Connecticut. Nobody, nobody took baseball players seriously in the late 70s and the early 80s. So I honestly, had I not gotten drafted as an outfielder by the St. Louis Cardinals out of high school, I probably, and I'm not being, you know, I'm not joking, I would have played soccer in college. I would not have played baseball. So, you know, that that was, I thought that was my path. And again, you know, so to, so the parents that are listening to this, whether you're a girl or a boy, your, your kids should be playing multiple sports because you never know when there's a scout watching or there's a college coach watching. And now, and Dave, KK, Dave can t- talk to this, you know, Gino Oriema, one of the best, you know, coaches, male or female on the planet, he's, he's recruiting your kid as a freshman in high school, not, not a junior senior, a freshman in high school. These kids are committing to colleges as freshmen in high school. That's how competitive it is. So I don't care what sport it is. If your kid's not peaking around freshman year, sophomore year for the scouts, your kid might not get to college on, on in, in the sport that he thinks he's great at or she thinks she's great at. So I, I just think that, you know, for, for us, you know, when we were growing up, we, we played all these sports for the love of the game. We loved it. We loved the competition. Now we're teaching these kids, hey, you need it for a college education. You need you need it for you know NIL. You need it for endorsements. That's crazy. That no kid should be learning at like twelve years old that sports are about making money or or earning money. I, I just think we're we're totally teaching these kids the wrong way. No, that 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 is said with such passion and clarity. I think it, it, you know this is a, a must listen for parents because I couldn't agree more with you. And taking the fun out of the sports. And, and you said something that made me think of uh, growing up. And I, I got to tell you, one of the games I love growing up but that they don't play anymore was dodgeball. You, oh, must yeah. have been a, you must have been a monster in dodgeball. <laughs> I was kind of evil. <laughs> I, you know, I, you know, even if we just did a dodgeball uh, tournament at our, at our baseball, our batting cages, and the people went nuts. They loved it. They loved The kids were amazing. Um, and we're trying to tell them no headshots. That was my whole thing. I was going to, I was going to put Spalding right across your forehead. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, but listen, I could take it too. That was another thing, you know, yes. I'm sure Dave yes. is tough as nails. You know, I loved it when people played rough, you know, play and pick up basketball, play, you know, God, I, and, and, you know, if my, if, if, 
the Reds knew what we did in the offseason. And even in the major leagues, we played a lot of charity basketball games. And it was all out. It was like a football game. But when I was in the minor leagues, I would go come back and play like CYO basketball against like 40-year-old men. And these guys are elbowing me in the fingers and in the eye. And it's just, you know, and, and even my older brother was like, dude, you should not be doing this. I'm like, no, I'm not going to stop living because I'm a pro baseball player. So, oh, yeah, dodgeball. Um, you know, we <laughs> when I was on the Best Damn Sports Show, period, um, we, we kind of did a spoof um, and played dodgeball. So I'm on the same team. You guys would love this. Rodney Pete, who played uh, 16 yeah. years in the NFL. John Sally who played, you know, won four NBA championships, is seven feet tall from Brooklyn, New York. Um, and we're on the same team playing dodgeball. And when the guys at this dodgeball uh, tournament found out it was us, because we kind of wore like outfits that, you know, really didn't show who we were, um, they they wanted to fight because we were drilling them. Rodney and I, even John, <laughs> um, you know, because that competitive nature comes out. and just Absolutely. And, I, and, and there's, no, there's nothing better than drilling somebody. No. Absolutely. There's, there's nothing but like the movie Dodgeball is is absolutely one of the best movies I've ever watched. Anytime, uh, you know, it's on my wife and I are watching it. That's the best line. If you could dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. I love absolutely. that. <laughs> hey, uh, you've got you had you told me some great stories about your travel team and the kids and having fun, uh, getting better and keeping things in perspective. But you talked about two boys and you referred to them as the green twins. Would you mind telling yeah. our audience about the green twins? Yeah, it's uh, Kyle Green and Ryan Green, and they, they're two of my favorite kids, and uh, this is one of the reasons why I'll, I'll continue coaching. Um, so Kyle came to us through a really good uh, bat maker here in Connecticut that's now getting some big league play uh, called Tater Bats. They're fantastic bats. All of our kids use them. All of our kids only want to play wood bat league. So uh, Kyle wanted to play, you know, the, our 17U – uh, travel is all all wood bat, and, and I, I I apologize if I didn't make that clear. So it's all wood bat. Trying to get these guys to understand. No, you know what? You could you could be hitting home runs in high school with an aluminum bat. Why don't you try a wood bat and see how good you really are? And so Kyle comes to us and he's like, "Listen, I got this kid. He's a friend of mine. His name's Ryan Green, and uh, he's a really good pitcher. And, and you know he can play some positions too. Well, Ryan's Dominican." And they, they spell their last names the same way. So I call them the Green Twins. And they're two of the nicest kids. But when they get on the field, they're as competitive as I used to be. So, But off the field, they're just like, you know, two gentlemen. And so they're both going to Western Connecticut. And Ryan, unfortunately, his dad just passed away. Um, and, and he's a young kid. He's 17 years old. Um, they're going to room together at West Con. They're, they're inseparable. Um, you know, Kyle and his family are amazing. They, they, you know, go everywhere together. So, um, I, that, that's probably some of the most satisfying things that's ever happened in my life is to have these kids come through the program, be as, as well mannered, educated, uh, you know, human beings as they are, and then care about each other so much that they want to go to college together and be roommates. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's not the kind of story you hear a lot about in 2022. And, you know, my wife, absolutely, you know, we adore these two kids. Yeah. And the name of the, that, that, that's such a great story. And that's what it's all about coaching wise, when you get that kind of relationship and it, what, what you, what do you call it? Smash factory? Is that, yeah, is that? It's Rob, Rob Dibble smash factory. 
you mentioned your wife a few times. How how does she add to John add to the equation of what you're trying to do? And it sounds to me like she keeps you grounded a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Listen, uh, I wouldn't even be doing this if it wasn't for her. I mean, she's all about education and, you know, uh, you know, these, the, it's, it's not about winning and losing these games for us. It's, you know, and, and John Susie at Westcom, by the way, uh, he's all about graduating his kids. That's, that's why uh, he's been there 23 years. And that's why I wanted to send my kids, even though it's division three, I wanted to send send these kids there because they're really good players, but they they may not go pro. But I'd like them to get a great education. So my wife, who I met when I was at ESPN, um, long time ago, going through a divorce, and and we met and we've been together ever since, almost twenty years now. And uh, she comes to every game, whether it's the eight year old games, uh, whether it's the eleven, but the seventeen year old, she sits on the bench, she does the book. And, and she's trying to guide a lot of these kids. Some of the kids that I get through the program, you know, they're not coming from, uh, you know, affluent families. They're coming from some broken families, uh, divorced families, some, from some inner city, you know, programs. And, and it's, it's all about, you know, trying to build better humans as well. And so she's there, you know, to kind of always stay in touch. Like one of my players just had his appendix out and he calls my wife first. You know, she's like, she's as much a coach or, you know, a team mom, but for 91 kids, it's, it's nuts. So, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I, 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 I feel at this point in our life, you know, it's, it's more about trying to help people and trying to care for these people um, and not parent their kids. It's not about that, but it's about, listen, we, you know, she's a highly educated uh, person, went to UConn, uh, went to Sacred Heart, got her master's degree was a teacher for 10 years. And, you know, she's taught me so much about, you know, through education and love and caring for these kids. She worked at one of the hardest uh, schools in Connecticut. She didn't have to, but she wanted to. So that's the same thing with, with our baseball program. You know, we're, we're not taking per se the best players from the best neighborhoods. We're just trying to, you know, get the best kids. Listen, we've already gotten rid of some parents because they're too toxic. The one thing I personally will not deal with is toxic parents. I won't have parents attack the other kids in the program. I, I won't have them screaming at umpires. And I'm like, listen, we're going to act a certain way. Now, not the way I played, by the way. People will be like, you were a jerk when you played. Yeah, I was because that was my job. But that's a whole different story. This is more about the kids at this point in my life than, than me. I Like my wife tells them all the time, I've, I've already done my history. You know, my, my history is written. I can't rewrite it. Um, but, but it's, it's about these kids and, and what they're going to do in the world. Well, speaking of your history, you know, p- people may forget, and, and there's, I know we get a lot of young people listening and stuff like that too. So, so, uh, the first three years in the majors, you, you were like, uh, your ERA was 174, 336 Ks and 256 innings. I mean, that to me, uh, that, that just speaks volumes but you also you here's the other thing I love about covering that team when I covered them in the playoffs and and guys like Hal McCoy who you go way back with and things like that. Uh, you guys blended like the personalities of, of uh, the Nasty Boys. Let let everybody know about what 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 how that all came together because I had Randy Myers as well. You know, as a player went with the. Oh, Padres. you had him on the Mets. Yeah, yeah, he was on the Mets too. And when I was in San Diego, he was on the Padres. And, yep. Uh, you know, Randy was different. I, I remember one time, uh, and this is why we love doing the show, because it sparks uh, memories that I forget until I start talking to you guys. 
we're in Philadelphia, I believe. And Randy had this thing about whatever team he was on, that's all he cared about. Yep. The past didn't matter. So there's a bunch of these, uh, you know, autograph guys waiting all night for him. And I'm, I happen to be standing there at the bus and, and uh, he was with the Padres now and they, they, they came, somebody came up with a photo, you know, a card for him to sign, whether it was, uh, you know, I forget what team it was, but it wasn't the Padres. Randy took the card, just ripped it up and <laughs> threw it on the ground. And he says, come back with a Padre card or something like that. You know, so, so, so you got to have some great memories about uh, the Nasty Boys. Well, I see Norm and Randy at least twice a year. We'll go back to Cincinnati and sign stuff. But Randy wouldn't do it for 20 years. Wow. Um, so, A, it made our our signatures more valuable. But, B, that year you nailed it. Um, it, it and the first few years we started doing the signings, if, if it was a Met from the 86 Mets or if it was the Orioles or if it was the Padres or the Cubs and it wasn't the Nasty Boys and the Reds, he would not sign it. And so eventually we're like, Randy, come on. You know, they're, 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 paying, they're paying for all of our autographs. But some of these people have come like, you know, 200 miles just to finish their collection from the Mets or the Padres or whatever. I'm like, you know, and we were like, listen, if they don't want ours, that's fine. But if they want yours, you know, just please sign it. And so, you know, now he does. But <clears throat> here's the thing about both of those guys. Like myself, you know, when we were with the Reds, and I, I spent 11 years in the organization from minor leagues to when I, I, I became a free agent in 94, um, it was family, man. I don't know how these guys treat each other now, but I can tell you, I could call Eric Davis right now and he'd pick up and we'd, it'd be like, we just talked to each other yesterday and it could be years. Uh, Barry Larkin, Paul O'Neill and I are very close. Joe Oliver, all of us. And, you know, Ron Oster, Tom Browning, uh, you know, I could cry because Tom's wife just passed away, but um, it, it's, it's, it's family. You know, I would do anything for these guys. And they knew it. They knew it. And sometimes I'd do it to the point that would exhaust them because it would be so stupid. But I'll give you, for instance, like, you know, Oral Hershiser drills Eric three times in a game in, in L.A. Right. And I didn't get in the game that night. But the next night when I came in, I drilled. And I only hit, and by the way, I only hit 12 guys in my career. And really? I'll tell you, yeah. 10 of them probably deserved it. Um, but Mike Marshall comes up, and I hit him probably 95 right in the ribs. And, and it didn't matter that I don't care if they even knew why I did it, but I wanted Eric to make sure, dude, I got your back no matter what, no matter what, if, if, if I have to get pummeled by 20 guys, I will protect you, you know, and Norm was the same way. And Randy was the same way, you know, and there's just, the Reds just put a video out of, of Norm, uh, absolutely, you know, crushing Mike Sosha, probably giving away about 40 pounds and, that was from Mike Sosha giving signals to the hitters from second base. There you go. And there's a backstory. Norm got suspended for a week for that. Norm threw it at Mike four times and couldn't hit him. So the only way Norm thought, listen, the only way I could get my message across was I'm going to have to steamroll this guy at home plate. So he ran through. Sammy Perlazzo was our third base coach. It's a ball down the left field line. And he's on first base. He runs all the way from first base to home just to take out Mike Sosha. So, you know, everything was about protection and family and everything you would do if you were a blood relative. But really, we, we, that's the way we were. And whether Pete Rose was the manager or Lou Pinella or when Davey Johnson and Tony Perez were, were managing us, 
it, that when you walked into our locker room in Cincinnati, we would fight like hell for you. It didn't matter who you were. That's just the way, you know, our organization and, and we were built. So I don't know how it is today. I think, you know, some teams are that way. And I think those are probably the more successful teams. But even watching the Angels and the Mariners brawl, I honestly think people will hate it and they'll say you, you know, shouldn't be fighting. I honestly think, listen, Jesse Winker came from Cincinnati. He, he understands what family's about because that's probably the way Joey Votto and everybody there, David Bell and all those guys were teaching it. Eric Davis and Barry Larkin are still in the organization. That's that's the way it should be. Whether it's football, basketball, I mean, if you're if you're not treating your teammates like family, you probably shouldn't be in the sport. Yeah, and and I was going to say too the you took care of things on the field, and I think that's one of the problems with MLB now. Much like the country, sometimes they're trying to legislate everything. Right. So so the players know how to take care of business on the field if you let them. And you, you, you're lucky you came from that era where you could do that. And, and I think that that is missing in today's game. And, and it's kind of sad. Oh, absolutely. And, and, but, you know, we also hung together, you know, I can't, I, I, on the podcast, I can't really tell you all the stuff we used to do together, but I can honestly tell you it would be 20 guys after a game, you know, like for instance, like in St. Louis, uh, the Adams Mark uh, hotel had a bar. Yeah, right across from the ballpark. Right yeah, across right from across the from the ballpark, right across from our hotel, so you could stumble back to your hotel at 3, 4 in the morning. Um, but we would go in there with 20 guys, and so would the Cardinals. This is why I respected the Cardinals, because we'd go in there, and Ozzie Smith and Pedro Guerrero and, and Akindo and all those guys were in there, and 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 it was just like – and now you're commiserating about about the game and stuff and, and talking baseball and – you know, and it wasn't about chasing women and all the other crap that people may think it is, but it, it was, listen, you, you had to decompress. And Houston was the same way. When I first come up to the major leagues, you could go to this place in Houston right across the street from the hotel, and they replayed the game. The owner of the bar, he wanted your business, but he, he replayed the game. And so you got 20 guys glued to the TV going, oh, man, I can't believe I did that. I remember that bar I used to go there. Yeah. So like every we, we always had our little haunts wherever we went. And then there was other places like Atlanta where you just went right in the hotel lobby and hung out because a lot of times, you know, you watch the sports center or you whatever. But everybody's talking. The coaches were there. And we, we had a team rule, too. If you were out and you saw the coaches, you know, you bought them a drink and you left because that bar belonged to the coaches. Yes. So yeah. you had like a respect factor. But like Lou, Lou's like, don't leave. We can all hang out together. Lou was amazing at, at, at camaraderie and, and family and, and building relationships. And, and if I could get into Lou for a second, I mean, some guys didn't like his approach. I loved him personally. And, you know, I because I'm an observer. I, I've always felt like I could be at a party, but I'm not really at the party. I'm on, I'm on the outside watching everybody else mingle and do stuff. It's just it's, it's a thing that I've always had. And I think so, that comes from your father, who was in the in the news business. Yeah, and and I'm always looking to get the story, looking looking to get the scoop. So you know, Lou before every game, KK, and I know you know Lou, he would talk to every player and go up to every guy and know what what button to push. And like I was having you know marital problems at the time, and he would be like, "Listen, you need to go home for a while." I'm like, "Yeah," and he's like, "Okay, go." He goes, "Just be back by the fifth inning." Can you imagine a manager doing that today? Oh my God! No. They, 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 people would wet themselves. They, they'd be like, "Oh my God, where, where did this guy get off to?" That was Lou, 
Because Lou knew if, if you weren't right in the head from a personal problem, you're not going to perform on the field. So, I mean, I, I don't talk about it enough, but he's one of the reasons I became as good as I was when he was there was because he allowed me to be a man, take care of the other personal issues, and and then come back and then do my job. So, But he did that with everybody. You know, there's malingerers. Dave knows this. There's guys that don't want to get off the training table and get out there and play. So, you know, he'd get in there and he'd, he'd be like, listen, we really need you. You know, if, if you could wrap that that sore hamstring and get out there and play, we, we could, you know, use your help tonight. I mean, he had a way about him that could convince somebody that we couldn't win without you. And and it was a beautiful thing to watch. So people might, you know, they see like a one side of Lou. They have no idea. Lou, Lou was all about everybody else. Lou would be in, in the dugout when guys were hitting and he's in their batting stance, like almost praying for them to get a hit. Wow. Like he's got, he's got a bat in his hand or he'd take a fungo and he's standing there. And he's like, you know, Eric's up or Barry's up or Chris Sabo or, or Paulini or any of these guys are, and he's, and he's got their stance. And I'm just, I was fascinated by that. Like, Oh my God, this guy is into every pitch, every at bat. There was never a time where Lou wasn't present uh, for these games. And so when, when they let him go, it's, it's like, it was a criminal offense. You had no idea. So that's a lot of times when these, these management people, or even owners don't understand how hard the managing job is to manage men at, in any sport. I, I, I it upsets me because I, I think some of these coaches and managers are are unbelievable at 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 understanding, reading the room, knowing who needs to be tweaked and not tweaked, how far I can go, how how you know I can't get in this guy's head or I'm going to lose him. I mean, I, I just think that that's the beauty of being a manager or coach. Uh, that explains it perfectly. And, and a, a couple of years ago, I was inducted into New York State Baseball Hall of Fame with Lou in that class. And what an honor it was to be inducted with Lou Pinella because I saw him as a player, as a coach, as a manager, and you you nailed it. He you know he 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 cared so much. And even in his speech, you know, he it was about how he cared about the players. And of course, you had the incident with Lou in the clubhouse that I think it happened to be filmed. What, what, what's your memories of that and how that all happened? Well, because like, like I told you before, guys, is that, you know, I used to fight with my brothers like that and, right, right. you know, over, over a misunderstanding and, you know, how McCoy was, was involved in it in, in some respect, but really it was because it's two, you know, highly competitive guys that, that wanted to win way more than, you know, uh, hated losing more than they love winning, so to speak. It's a, it's an awful cliche, but it's the truth. And so my, my arm was hanging and, and I pitched like three, three days in a row. And I, I said, Lou, night, warming up last night, man, I, my arm's dead. I, I could use a day off. And I said that before the game and, and, and he was pissed and he said, well, then don't dress out. So I didn't. So I sat in the clubhouse. I didn't dress. And they had to use three pitchers in the ninth inning uh, to win the game. And after the game, a reporter came to me and said, Lou says you're hurt and uh, you can't pitch. And I said, that's a lie. I said, I needed a night off. I'm fine. I'll be back tomorrow. Um, and this is, you know, from God's ears, whoever said it to Lou said, Dibble just called you an effing liar. So that would piss off anybody. So now I'm, <laughs> you know, listen, I'll fight at the drop of a hat. Anybody knows me, it, it, you know, I enjoy the battle more than anything. And so Lou, I could see it in his face. 
he he comes through. Now his office was directly across from my locker in Cincinnati. And KK, you remember those things? They were, oh, they were, I, I remember that that clubhouse very well. Oh my god, they they were built for football players. So they had these huge, like two by four wide, uh, you know, columns coming up from each side. And so I'm I'm like standing in front of my locker, and he comes and he just charges me. But at, at, in a fight, the last thing you want to do is give up your position. He like grabs me around the waist. So I grab him around the head and I'm giving him a couple of upper, uppercuts before I realize, oh crap, this is my boss. Probably, <laughs> I probably shouldn't beat the tar out of him. So when the video turns on, you see my arm wedged against the, the locker, which like they're, they're like almost like steel because they're so well built. And he's flailing, trying to get up and stuff like that. And then you see the whole thing. But here's the thing the next day, to his credit and, and, you know, myself, we had so much love and respect for each other. It was over. There was, there was no more animosity because first of all, I loved him as a player. I grew up watching him when he was with the Yankees and, and I understood it was all about the competitive side. It wasn't personal. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big, you know, this is personal or this is business. That was strictly business. And, you know, the next day I got a save. And Lou, to his credit, comes up after when you're going through the high five line, and he fakes a couple of punches to the midsection. And it was over, you know. And he and he wrote some nice stuff in his book about me. And 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 listen, when he won 116 games up in Seattle, I happened to be covering that for for ESPN. You know, I bought him a bottle of Dom because he deserves that respect. And you know, but but for some people, they're like, oh, do you hate Lou? I'm like, hate Lou. I love Lou. Lou helped me win a championship. He he helped me become a better man. You know, I mean, it's, it's people, people, you know, might think that that was a thing. It was, it was nothing more than, you know, he was pissed. I couldn't pitch that night and I was pissed that I probably should have gotten the save and I should have kept my mouth shut. Well, that's why I wanted to ask you, because people, we're, we're living in a society now where, where men sometimes aren't really, you know, they get in trouble for being men. You know what I mean? And <laughs> I hate to phrase it that way, but that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat truthful with this stuff and, and it drives me nuts. So I, I grew up as a reporter in that era. I understood all that stuff. And, and, you know, I understood, I mean, I, I've had Lou tell me great things about you. He does love you. I well, mean, I love he does him. love you and vice versa. And just like brothers, these things sometimes happen. And then when you get a little agitation in there, you know, we set Lou off, you know, but it becomes, I think it becomes, you know, the way you describe it, I think people need to hear that because they need to understand that no matter what happens, you guys are in this together and, and you guys proved it time and time again. And, and I want to get back one last thing I have. The the, the sweep of the uh, A's, uh, we, we really didn't get to that enough. Um, that, that was an unbelievable uh, performance in 1990. You know, that team was, was loaded. They lost in 88 to the Dodgers. They went in 89. Uh, what... You know, and obviously there was the, uh, you know, Dave Stewart had his things to say at the time. But you guys came in and did the job. I mean, you, uh, Eckersley, I remember saying how, uh, you know, you deserved it as a team um, because of what you did. The, the, the magic moment of winning those those four games, that that still has to be a wonderful memory for you. Oh, absolutely. Well, first, I, I'd, I'd say the Pirates, had they beaten us, they would have beat the A's. 
Oh, that was an unbelievable series, and, and you're yeah. right, Bonds and that team, and yeah, they, they were uh, they were a lot like you, and they had a great manager too. They did, and and Jim Leland was an amazing manager, and and honestly, they were pretty close. Uh, if Glenn Braggs doesn't rob that home run on Carmelo Martinez, we're probably still playing. Um, but you know, coming off of that was exhausting emotionally. Um, but when, when we saw the video, remember, it's not like it is today where you see video on camera or phones and smart, you know, uh, laptops and everything else. You had, you had TV. So <clears throat> we watched them get off the plane coming into Cincinnati, and they're all wearing Tommy Bahama shirts, shorts, and flip-flops. Now, if you don't know the res organization when I played for it, no facial hair, no long hair. Everybody had to wear dress pants, dress shirts, and that was a Lou policy and a Reds policy. So we always had to look the same, dress the same. I don't want to say it was militant, but it was really buttoned up. And so they get off the plane like that. And then, I mean, that if that wasn't, like, upsetting to everybody. So then they come to the ballpark, and during batting practice, you know, all of our guys. Here's the thing. I mean, I don't even know what they do today, but almost the entire team would watch their team take batting practice. Wow. So we're sitting there watching them take batting practice. And then remember. <clears throat> when the Reds went on the field, we all wore the same top. You wore your hat. You never, like, took your hat off unless you were running. And then you put it right back on. You you always, there was always a way we looked together. And they come out, they, the Bash brothers, and they, they got no hats on. They got cut off sleeves. And honestly, they look like a softball team to us. So we have a players-only meeting before the first game of the World Series. Like, nobody comes into our house and acts like that when we're forced to do the crap that we got to do. We were so pissed off before game one. It just carried over. Eric hits that home run in the first thing, But that was our attitude. You're messing with family here. And, you know, the, the fact that they dress the way they dress. I mean, even the Pirates always dress the same. They never had that, like – you know, uh, we're, we're going to, you know, some guys are going to wear hats. Some guys are going to have hats backwards. And, uh, it, you know, honestly, you know, Ken Griffey Jr., that hit, that was that was the way he would have looked abnormal if he wore his hat forward when he was doing all of his stuff. But for what we were taught and the way we were raised in the organization, that was just the way things were. Like even the Yankees still have the facial hair policy. You know, it's got to be clean shaven, whatnot. So after that, it was on. It was, it was a street fight, and, you know, we had all the numbers, and it's funny because, you know, they talk about analytics and stuff like that. We knew Ricky Henderson was probably going to steal bases. Probably we weren't going to be able to stop him. So we were like, we're going to stop the middle of the lineup. We're going to attack them with fastballs. I'll never, I can, it's like I'm sitting in the, the scouting report meeting right now. you got to attack these guys inside on their hands, fastballs above their belt. You, you can't just sit there and leave, you know, breaking balls up in the zone. They're going to kill them. You know, the, every, everything was all analytics even back then. But it was it was scouts that gave you the information. It was people that had been watching them play for two, three weeks coming into that series. You know, and so the same kind of reporting that helped Kirk Gibson hit that 3-2 uh, breaking ball home run off of Eckersley in 88, it's the same stuff we had in 90. You know, and so Ricky, Ricky was the only guy that hit 300 for the series. Everybody else we dominated. I think we outscored them 22 to 8 and it was all it, again it was numbers and but at the end of the day it was we had an understanding we respect how good you are but we're going to kick the crap out of you 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 have no idea 
what's going to happen to you. Because we had so many amazing players that nobody knew about. You know, Riho, Danny Jackson, Tom Browning had thrown a perfect game already. You know, then you go through our lineup. Paul O'Neill would go on and win four more World Series with the Yankees. Barry Larkin is a Hall of Famer and was, and should have won five or eight more gold gloves, but he played in the same league uh, with Ozzie Smith. You know, I mean, our, our second baseman, we had Billy Dorn, Ron Oster, Mariano Duncan. I mean, we, we had guys that were every bit as good as anybody on the A's. Yet, because of the way the sport was covered back then, and even if you go to the, the, the Hall of Fame now, there's a whole thing set up for the 88, 80, 89, 90 A's in Cooperstown. And I even told those guys, I'm like, where's stuff about the Dodgers and the Reds? Because we won two out of three. The National League won two out of three of those World Series. So, yeah, it, it was amazing. But I, I, honestly, in a word, it was a relief. It was a relief because had we not won, I don't, I don't know what, I, how I would have been able to live with myself or the other guys the same way because we knew we were special and we, we, we just had to do the job, had, had to finish that off after beating the Pirates. That's so awesome. Dave, what do you got? Yeah, I just uh, one more thing for me, Rob. I, you have a sense of reverence for the scouts and how they helped you win ball games and, and approach each hitter each game. There's a lot of good men out there that are either pushed out of the game or have been marginalized by the game of analytics right now. Talk to them right now, just how important they were to your career and how important they can still be in the game of baseball. Oh, absolutely. And even a great friend of mine was a great, uh, you know, woman basketball player. Ashley Battle is a scout for the Celtics. And they they pour over and Dave, basketball is a little different. You guys in football can pour over video and and video and, and go over guys and, and tendencies and things like that. Scouts are the backbone of, of sports, evaluators. Even when I was coming up in high school, I had scouts that would give me tips that made me a better player and a better, better pitcher. And I still incorporate them into my lessons. They just, they have a knowledge that's a little bit different. And the fact that you could have guys like in baseball and KK knows this, somebody that can project talent from let's say 16 17 years old i can see in four years five years that kid playing in the major leagues or that kid playing in the nba or that that woman playing in the wnba i mean to have somebody with a gift like that and to know they're being forced out of sports by people that have no understanding that that's a talent that's a talent and you know being able to to see something and it's it's funny because i remember um talking to some of the, the scouts with the, the uh, Red Sox and even, even Theo Epstein when they were they were looking at Dustin Pedroia in college. They didn't know – I mean, they could see how good he was as a player, but they didn't know they wanted to draft him until they spoke with him. So just like in football, you know, and I've talked to Herm Edwards and so many football uh, experts and stuff, it's not until you get 15 minutes alone with a young person that you understand whether or not you want to draft them. And have them play for your organization. So for me, it's it, the scouting, the evaluation, the people that can project talent. Uh, it, that to me is is the most amazing part of sports because it, these people, it's a thankless job. And, and baseball might be the worst. I mean, at least now, you know, when you're scouting and you're uh, recruiting and recruiting too. You know, at the, the people, Dave, that recruit and and you know, at any sport are the most important people because you can't build a program without great athletes and you get great athletes from 
the people that are scouting and evaluating them and going to the junior high games, going to the high school games, you know, going all over the country and to other countries to to find talent. I, I just think it's it's you know, that's that's the, the most underrated part and under, uh, you know, under underappreciated part of sports. That's well said. Yeah. We're, we're trying. Yeah, to- I was just going to say phenomenal job, Dibs. And uh, if people listen to this, they're going to learn so much about baseball life and, and you. I think, uh, you know, again, because of our relationship and being on your show, I, I really know who you are. And and I think that's the beauty of what we try to do here. And it's uh, we just appreciate so much you telling it like it is. I mean, that, that's 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 so important this day and age. And also the work you and your wife do with young people. That's phenomenal. And congratulations. And uh, had a great time with you. Well, thank you, guys. I respect both of you guys. And, uh, you know, we need to sit down and break some bread and have some some vino and talk some more sports. Absolutely. Hey, Rob, tell our audience where they can find you on social media and where they can listen to you. Um, geez, I don't even know my Twitter accounts and stuff like that, but you, you can go on the iHeartRadio app and it's the Rob Dibble show, uh, afternoon drive three to seven in Hartford and New Haven, Connecticut on ESPN radio. Um, and like, like I said, we were just at the travelers. That was such a treat for me to go out there and cover another sport. I've been very blessed to do that kind of stuff. So yeah, you could you could find me there. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on TikTok now because my, my daughter's 11 and, and it upsets her that I have a TikTok account. But, uh, you know, most mostly it's more about uh, the radio show. And then you could go to the, the Rob Dibble Smash Factory um, and, you know, seats. We'll, we'll be in some tournaments and stuff like that. We're going down to Ripken next month and taking four teams down there for the exposure. And Billy Ripken does an amazing job down there. So um, I'm around. You can find me. Right. We'll make sure our audience knows that. Too. And give us the name of the bat maker you, you told us about earlier. Tater, Tater Bats. Tater Bats. T-A-T-E-R. Uh, Alex Cora was just wearing one of their sweatshirts. Nice. They we'll make-, make amazing bats for kids. They're they're not that expensive. Um, they'll custom make them whatever color your kid wants. Uh, you know, put his, engrave his name in there. They're amazing. They're out of Waterbury, Connecticut. So they've got a few guys in the big leagues. A lot of minor leaguers, but I, they've got hundreds and thousands of kids playing around New England with their bats. Great. We'll make sure we plug them as well. And you can find Kevin, obviously, at AMBS underscore Kernan. You can find us on Twitter at D-A-V-I-D-D-A-G-O-S-T-I-N 16. That's where you can search Coaching Kernan. I'm sorry, at Coaching Kernan on Twitter. Also, please want to thank our sponsor, One-on-One. Uh, one-on-one is a scholarship program for kids, 557 kids, scholarships, men's basketball, women's basketball, baseball, and softball in the last 25 months. Make sure you follow them on Twitter at one-on-one, your shot on one, or Instagram at one-on-one, your shot on your terms. Guys, thanks so much. And again, make sure you read Kevin Ball, nine, two great articles this week. Uh, guys, I really enjoyed it today. Our audience is going to have fun with this one. Thanks. Thanks Thank again, Dibs. Yep. Take care, guys. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon because uh... – you know, we, we get carried away when we talk to you because it's all about the real. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, dude, and you're, that article on the analytics stuff is awesome. The the When people talk about money ball, it's like, but they never won. They never won. <laughs> they never and, won. And the, uh, it's like I, I had the scouts saying it's a, it's, a, it's a little joke within the industry. Like, oh, yeah, all the rings they have. <laughs> and, and plus it changed. It changed the, the whole game. And all these nerds now are in charge. 
And I don't have anything against nerds as long as they work with, with scouts and everything. But they, they it's it's kind of an elite group, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. And look what we have now. And if you read the article on Ball 9, you'll see what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, that that's uh, – it, it's funny. 20 years – and it's 20 years later, Dibs. That's why I wrote it because I, I was thinking about it one day. I said, geez, Moneyball came out in 2011. When was the book again? And then he was embedded in 2002, Michael Lewis, with them. And uh, – it's become the way every nerd I've talked to through the years, they've always said, well, I read Moneyball. And I wrote it. Uh, you know what? Spend some time in the minor leagues. Talk to these guys. Learn what the game is all about. And even better yet, fellas, all, you, all nerds, men and women, why don't you listen to the show? You might learn something. So uh, you got me going again, Dibs. Thanks again. <laughs> we'll talk soon. Uh, Amazon, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple. Like us, follow us, subscribe. Give us five hearts. Guys, it was great.